This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The Young Turks, On the Media, Moyers and Company, The Progressive, Citizen Radio, and The Jimmy Dore Show. And a note just to reminisce for a moment on the fact that I haven't heard conservatives refer to progressives as the Blame America First crowd in a while. I wonder why. The strange thing about this is that, you know, I, I've obviously lived for uh, several years in Boston. I grew up uh, 40 miles west of Boston. Uh, I went to law school for a year in Boston. Um, I've been to multiple of those Patriot Day Sox games. I've observed a couple of Boston marathons. I distinctly remember being in law school and walking home from uh, law school on Calm Ave that day through Kenmore Square, um, which is just to the west of where the marathon sort of passes by as it heads down another, I don't know, dozen blocks until it's finished, and thinking, God, I wish I wasn't in law school because everybody was partying. I mean, literally everybody was partying. Um, as I was walking down the streets and, uh, you know, feeling sorry for myself, boo-hoo. Um, and so it's strange to, to contemplate, you know, one's emotional proximity to uh, an event like this. And because, you know, I had uh, family who I knew were at the Sox game yesterday, and because I knew all those locations and spent quite a bunch of time hanging out half drunk on the Boston Public Library steps and drank all up and down Boylston Street at different times um, and, you know, the perspective of, of, of being in Boston, you don't contemplate the idea of being hit with a terrorist attack, frankly, because there's this perception of if there's going to be a terrorist attack or this type of attack, let's say, um, on the East Coast, they're just going to go to New York. They're just going to do it in New York because there's going to be a lot more media there. Um, but it is, you know... I'm obviously, you know, the, we're, we're talking about three dead. We're talking about 176 uh, uh, wounded, 17 who are critical. Maybe the, the death toll will rise, hopefully not. Uh, people's limbs blown off. Apparently, um, according to the, the doctors that were treating uh, victims, there was a sense that the bombs were placed on the ground or near the ground because virtually all of the injuries uh, took place in the lower part of people's bodies. Some people lost legs. Uh, but there was very few casualties walking around uh, with head wounds or with chest wounds. Uh, and so it's the doctors at least speculated that the bombs were were planted on the uh, on 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 the ground here but the i mean the point is is that you know i remember when uh, oklahoma happened obviously i remember uh, when obviously 911 was in the the city but um there's the authorities clearly don't feel that this is a national threat in the way that they did on 9-11. And so at the very least, despite the fact that we don't know who, who perpetrated this or why, it's more analogous to Oklahoma. And of course, in Oklahoma, you had literally hundreds more people die. Um, and in some way, maybe we're more sensitized uh, to these things after 9-11. But... But I think, you know, for me personally, just because I know Boston, 
because I have relatives who were, you know, not not far from there. Um, I'm more sensitive to it, and it makes you sort of, you know, contemplate. There's something inevitable that's going to um, happen. You know, where where people are concerned about their own families, and then they are concerned about their own hometown, and then they are concerned about their own nationalities, uh, and th- and there is a inescapable hierarchy of concern that we have. With that said, you know what struck me was that yesterday I mentioned in passing at one point in the program you know 50 people plus killed in Iraq over the weekend and that was it then we moved on and it didn't seem awkward it didn't it didn't make me pause for a moment that we could just move on and talk about other things and do an interview, uh, the idea of, you know, we had an interview scheduled today, we're going to do it later in the week, but the idea that I could have done that today was, of course, uh, I, I couldn't even contemplate doing that. Yet, 50 people die over the weekend in Iraq, and in many respects, We are, we are all more culpable in the deaths of those 50 people than we certainly are in the deaths of those uh, three in Boston yesterday. And there's been literally hundreds, uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, who have died in Iraq in just as horrific, if not more horrific, circumstances that we don't um, just don't resonate with us in the same way. And, you know, at this juncture, when we don't know who committed these acts, we don't know why they did, The, the only thing that we can sort of take away from this type of situation is, at this point, is to examine how we empathize with humanity at large. There's been tens of thousands of eight-year-olds, maybe not eight-year-olds, but children who have been killed in Iraq, in Afghanistan, um, in places around the world where we're not in any way implicated, who are suffering, and uh, yet we don't we don't contemplate their deaths. Um, even even I mean even a fraction of a fraction to the extent that we're contemplating the deaths of. You know, these people in Boston, or the way that we did in Newtown, for that matter. Uh, and some of it is just simply human nature. I mean, I guess it all, in many respects, is human nature. But I think, you know, the challenge for us, uh, among other challenges, which of course have to do with civil liberties and the way that we react to this, regardless of who uh, perpetrated this. Uh, one of the challenges is to expand our capacity to empathize and recognize the humanity of people who suffer all around the world. And particularly those who suffer um, as a function of what we do and what uh, is done in our names by our government. The pledge to resist. We believe that as a people living in the United States, it is our responsibility to resist the injustices done by our government in our names. Not in our names.
no more deaths, no more transfusions of blood for oil. Rush Limbaugh wants to get in on the fun, uh, but he thinks that the media has conspired to protect Muslims. Fascinating. It's an interesting twist. And they are ready to uh, blame the right wing. And I wonder who he thinks did it. Listen to what he says, and you'll be able to get a sense. I dare say that if you are a Muslim, you can, you can be pretty certain, you can rest assured that everybody in the media will circle the wagons and say this is not because of Islam. This is a lone bad actor, lone wolf, but this in no way says anything about Islam. It says no way says anything about Muslims. It's just a lone nut. And they will remind us that the vast majority of people denounce this kind of terrorism, the vast majority of Muslims. So if you're a Muslim, and it turns out to be a Muslim bomber, you will be in no way associated with it. This guy's the king of projection, man. That's all he does. After every right-wing attacker, you know, it's a guy who shoots up a church, a guy who's going to go to shoot up Tides Foundation, the list goes on and on. Rush Limbaugh comes out and says, it's a lone wolf, it's a lone wolf, he can't judge the right. It is outrageous to politicize this and to judge the whole right wing based on this. So he now projects that on to Muslims. And who will be doing the opposite, by the way? If it is one Muslim, what will Rush Limbaugh say? Islam. You know how it is. The media is trying to protect them, but it's all of Islam. All right, Rush, if it's a Christian... Am I allowed to say it's all Christians? If it's a right-winger, am I allowed to say it's all right-wingers that you're at fault, Rush Limbaugh? Am I allowed to say it? No, your head would blow up, right? And the reality is, it's dumb either way. If it's a right-winger, of course it's not all right-wingers. You think like 40% of the country is guilty if it's some idiot right-winger who did it? Now, that doesn't mean that the Department of Homeland Security shouldn't have more people trying to track right-wing extremists, not the 40% of the country that consistently votes right-wing. Now, the Department of Homeland Security is down to one person tracking them. That's mental. Now, that force should be increased so that we go after extremists of any ilk. And the same with Muslims. If it's one Muslim, what? Rush Limbaugh apparently thinks, oh yeah, the media will protect the Muslims, when in fact, what? We should be invading random Muslim countries like we did after 9-11? The level of his stupidity is tiring. I'm exhausted trying to correct his dumb ass. He's going to make me do it one more time. However, folks, if you are a conservative out there today, and it turns out that whoever did this is either real or has an imagined connection to conservatives, everybody in the media will unite to denounce your whole group. And believe me, that's what they're all hoping for on the left. Folks, reminding you what I do. I get up. I look. I listen. I read. I see the things, the people, the institutions I believe in under assault again. I come here and defend them. I am purely in a defensive posture today. Ah, uh, that last part was very telling. Why are you in a defensive posture? If you think there was no chance it was a right-winger, why would you care? If that extremist right-winger is not at all connected to you, why would you be in a defensive posture? Ah, uh, so you think that perhaps it is connected. Now look, I don't know. We don't have that information yet. But apparently Rush is worried about it. So he's already in a defensive posture. So look, he reads, he gets up, he breathes fairly heavily, he goes to the bathroom several times, and then he comes out and defends right-wingers, whether they're extremists or otherwise. Rush, you're if it is an extremist right-winger, you're supposed to say they don't represent us. They have an ideology that is extreme. For example, some fundamentalist Muslims do bombings. They are terrorists, they are extremists, they're fundamentalists. They're not like the rest of the Muslims. You see, rational people uh, can understand this stuff fairly easily. But Rush Limbaugh is at a point where he cannot put it into a box yet. So the computer is broken down. He's like, I want to blame all Muslims. 
But what if it is a right winger? Then I do not want them blaming us. Does not compute. Does not compute. I want to defend all of us, but attack all of them. How do I know, do it without being able to put it into easy black and white buckets? I am confused. System breaking down. I am no longer eating, reading, and dumping. Assisted design. See how you get from a thought to an object. Computer assisted design. It takes an idea and makes 3D stuff. Computer assisted design. It's getting ugly out there if you're a Muslim American. Just two days after the Boston Marathon bombings, a 26-year-old Palestinian-American doctor was strolling her baby in Malden, Massachusetts, when a guy came up to her and slugged her in the shoulder and swore at her for being a Muslim and for being responsible for the attacks. Other hate crimes have followed, as has the hate-filled rhetoric. Fox News is specializing in it, with hosts calling for listening devices to be placed in mosques. And the so-called liberal on Fox, Bob Beckel, said no more student visas should be granted from Muslim countries. And prominent Republicans are echoing these sentiments, with Marco Rubio saying he was open to blocking those visas, and Peter King advocating increased surveillance of the Muslim-American community. This is the worst kind of guilt by association. There are about two and a half million Muslims living in the United States. They are not responsible for the actions of the two sociopaths at the Boston Marathon. As one of our writers, Joseph Maton, has pointed out so well, when white people kill, they're mentally unstable. When Muslims kill, they're terrorists. Or as King and others would likely say, just Muslim. This dangerous nonsense has got to stop. I'm Matt Rothschild. And that's how I see it. Because every bit of land is a holy land, and every drop of water is a holy water, and every single child is a son or a daughter of the one earth mama and the one earth papa. So don't tell a man that he can't come here, because he got brown eyes and a wavy kind of hair. And don't tell a woman that she can't go there, because she prays a little different to a God up there. You say you're a Christian, because God made you. You say you're a Muslim, because God made you. You say you're a Hindu, and the next man a Jew. Then we all kill each other. Cause God told us to now Hello, hello Hello, hello Bonjour, bonjour I'm afraid of what the conservative reaction is going to be here So let me give you a little preview of the stuff you'll probably hear Number one, oh, we knew it, it was the Muslims You see, it said Muslims have an ideology Nobody will talk about the ideology of abortion, doctor killers, etc. It's, you know, nobody will talk about fundamentalists of another stripe. Now that it turns out they were Muslim, we just, this is day one, now that we know who they are, wait for it, okay? I mean, the ugly stuff is going to come out from the fringe and work its way towards Fox News, right? And so we'll see how that goes. Number two, oh, immigrants. We knew it. Don't allow any immigrants to the country. Here comes Steve King and those sets of crazies, and that brand of ugliness is coming, all right? And this, this is partly why we were rooting that they weren't Middle Easterners. Now it turns out they're not. They're Russian, they're Chechnyans, they're Caucasians, but they are Muslim. So, you know, Jakar, described by all his friends as all-American, came here when he was young, etc. That's not going to stop Steve King and the rest from saying, we told you, we told you not to let the immigrants in, right? Now... Is that true of all of the other immigrants, the millions of immigrants that have come in and been incredibly productive members of society? Steve Jobs' uh, father, originally from Syria, what if we didn't let him into the country? How would that have turned out? But they're not going to talk about that. They're going to talk about the ugly side of things, right? So, and then the third thing that they're going to come at you with is, uh, President Obama. I see this is a failure. You know, this happened on his watch. It didn't happen under Bush's watch. Now you're going to say, wait a minute, 9-11 happened under Bush's watch. But they'll ignore that. They just they routinely say that nothing happened under Bush's watch and he kept us safe when the worst terrorist attack in American history happened under Bush's watch. He had nine months. He had the warnings. Now here, if President Obama, like President Bush, had warnings, 
if they gave him a classified intelligence saying, hey, the Chechnyans are likely to attack in Boston, and he did nothing, then I'll be the first one to blame him. Now, in the beginning with Bush, I thought, well, I mean, how in the world could anybody have known? Then we found out many months and years later that, in fact, he had been specifically warned about attacks in Washington and New York, and he told the CIA guys who briefed him in Crawford, okay, you covered your ass, go back home, right? Now, if you find something like that on Obama, by all means, then all criticism is merited. But you think the conservatives are going to wait for that? <laughs> no, tick-tock, tick-tock. I mean, that overwhelming criticism is minutes away. So I could be wrong about all this. We'll see how it develops. But my guess is those three prongs of attack, they're just waiting to push the button on. So they're headed in our direction. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. In the aftermath of the Boston bombings and the massive manhunt which led to the death of one suspect and the arrest of another, both of them Muslims, there have been calls for increased surveillance and scrutiny of the public at large and Muslims in particular. On Fox News the other day, New York Congressman Peter King said, if you know a threat is coming from a certain community, that's where you have to look. Proceed with caution here, Mr. King, and first take a look at that Council on Foreign Relations analysis of an FBI study showing that from 1980 to 2001, around two-thirds of domestic terrorism was carried out by American extremists who were not Muslims. That number actually skyrocketed to 95% in the years immediately after 9-11. And the magazine Mother Jones found that of the 62 mass shootings in America since 1982, mass killings defined as four deaths or more, 44 of the killers were white males. My guest, the journalist and columnist Glenn Greenwald, was flying here from his home in Brazil as events in Boston were unfolding. The investigation once again raised issues of civil liberties in the fight against terrorists. So we reached out to Glenn Greenwald, who as a former constitutional and civil rights litigator keeps his critical and contrarian eye on potential conflicts between national security and individual liberty. Among his best-selling books, How Would a Patriot Act? And most recently, With Liberty and Justice for Some, How the Law is Used to Destroy Equality and Protect the Powerful. Currently, Glenn Greenwald writes regularly for The Guardian. You can read him on their website. Welcome, Glenn. It's good to see you again. Great to be back. Was it right, in your opinion, for the suspect in Boston to be charged as a criminal rather than an enemy combatant? Uh, absolutely. There were very few people who even took seriously the idea that he ought to be charged as an enemy combatant for many reasons, including the fact that he's an American citizen on U.S. soil. And if there's one thing we're taught to think about our country, it's that the government can't punish people or put them in cages or threaten them with death without charging them with a crime, giving them a trial with a jury of their peers, and then convicting them beyond a reasonable doubt. But the broader question is, should we change or radically uh, alter or dismantle our standard protocols of justice uh, in the name of terrorism? That's been the debate we've been having since the September 11th attack, and I'm firmly in the camp that we need not and should not do that, and, and therefore he should be treated like any other criminal. If it turns out that he and his brother had some significant contact with a radical organization back in their home country, would that change anything in your mind? Well, I think that the most important thing that we need to start asking, and if that were the case, this question would become even more urgent, is why is it that there seem to be so many people from so many different parts of the world willing to risk their lives um, or their liberty in order to bring violence to the United States, including to random Americans whom they don't know. There has to be something very compelling that drives somebody to do that. 
And this was the question that was asked in the wake of the 9-11 attack um, in, the, in, in, in the form of the, the, the sort of iconic question, why do they hate us? And the government needed to answer that question because people were quite rightly asking, and the answer that was fed to them was, well, they hate us for our freedom. And I think 10 years, 11 years later, people are very cynical about that answer and realize that that's not really the reason. Um, because what you see is that people from parts of the world that weren't part of 9-11 um, are now starting to attack the United States as well. And when they're heard, which is rare, but sometimes they are, about what their motive was, invariably they cite the fact that um, they had become so enraged by what Americans are doing to Muslims around the world, to their countries in terms of bombing them, imprisoning them without charges, um, drone attacking them, um, interfering in their governments, propping up their dictators, um, that they feel that they have not only the right but the duty uh, to attack America back. And, and so I think that the discourse then ought to really be focused on what is driving this war and how is it that we can do something that will, instead of perpetuating it further and exacerbate it further, start to think about how to undermine and dilute the sentiments that continue to fuel it, you know, 12 years after the 9-11 attacks. You wrote the other day of America's invisible victims, and they are? The invisible victims are the women and children and innocent men who the United States continues to um, kill in places like uh, tribal regions in Pakistan, in Yemen, in Somalia, in Afghanistan, um, at times in the Philippines, um, places throughout the Muslim world where the United States sends flying robots. We never hear about who those people are. And you can contrast it with the few instances in which the United States is attacked. We learn the names of the victims. We know their lives. We hear from how their family members are grieving. We never hear any of that in terms of the children, the women, and innocent men whom we kill in the Muslim world. And, and it's sort of an out-of-sight, out-of-mind dynamic where by not hearing about them, we never think about them. And by not thinking about them, we forget that they exist. And, and that's why when somebody attacks the United States, it leads to this bewilderment. Like, well, what have we ever done to anybody that would make them want to attack us. I think you were traveling when the Boston siege was unfolding, is that right? When did, right. You, when did you actually find out that it was happening? What happened was I, was I was flying overnight to the United States on Thursday night, which is when the shootout took place between the two brothers and the police in which the older one was killed. And then Friday morning when I got off the plane at, at JFK, um, was really the start of when people woke up and, and heard that there was this intense manhunt for the younger brother. And because I was traveling, I was generally in public places for the next several days, in, in airports, hotels, restaurants. And what I saw was everybody glued to the television in order to observe and engage with a very political event, which was the, this manhunt. And the reason that struck me was because there are very few events that really engage most people in the United States on a political level. Maybe there's one or two events like that every few years, maybe a national presidential election, um, but this was one of them. Why do you call it a political event? Well, it was political because it was infused with all kinds of political messages about Muslims, about radicalism, about what the proper role of the police and the military are in the United States. There were instantly... Um, these call, these calls for greater surveillance. There was a lockdown of Boston, and a very extraordinary act that a major American city would be completely locked down. Um, what you could see in in how people were observing what it was that they were watching um, was their political impressions about the world, about their government, about political debates being formed um, based on the very few incidents that they really pay attention to. And I think that's the reason why incidents like this are incredibly significant in an enduring way because it shapes how people who don't pay much attention to politics regularly really think about about the world. And you think viewers were evaluating this manhunt that was playing out in front of them in a through political lens? Absolutely. I mean, it's it, it's 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 inherently the case because when somebody does something like detonates two bombs, one of which is placed behind an eight-year-old child, which it kills, um, and then tears off the limbs of dozens of other people, um, none of whom are known to the perpetrators. The question naturally arises, why would any human being engage in that behavior? 
And generally, when the person is a white Christian or a white American, there's an attempt instantly to assure everybody that it's simply kind of a one-off, that it doesn't have a political content, that the person is mentally ill, that they're a lone actor, um, that they just snapped is usually the jargon, to assure everybody that there's no political conclusions that ought to be drawn. When the person, though, is Muslim, everything reverses. So there's no consideration to the possibility that they were mentally ill, that they simply snapped, that they were being driven by political considerations of alienation or frustration about things in their lives. Instead, there's an assumption that this bolsters the idea that we face this grave and potentially even existential threat from radical Muslims against whom we've been fighting this decade-long war, and it really bolsters the premises of that war um, by ratcheting up the fear levels and by by reaffirming the political convictions in which it's grounded. But you agree that terrorism is a threat and has to be dealt with, not only in trying to understand what provokes it, but in trying to prevent it. Sure. It's the responsibility of the U.S. government to prevent its citizens from being killed. Um, and attacked in the way that, that they were attacked in Boston. Um, unfortunately, the answers that are typically offered to that question of how can the government protect us um, usually end up not only not protecting us, but making the threat worse. So that's the problem, as I see it, is that the more we react by saying, well, we now need to go bomb further with drones, uh, we need to infiltrate and surveil more, we need to put Muslims under more of a microscope and be more aggressive in how we attack them and we think they're a threat, I think the worse this problem becomes. I think that's the problem, is that the policies justified in the name of stopping terrorism have actually done more to exacerbate that threat and to render us unsafe than any other single cause. That raises the really deep question, the serious question of how do we thrive as an open society? and become the country that we want it to become when we are faced with the knowledge that these attacks can come when and where we don't expect them. Well, this is the problem, is that the reality is, is that if you have an open society, then you can't prevent attacks like this. Um, you can build enormous structures of security to prevent people from going on airplanes with uh, bombs or guns, but then what do you do about trains or crowded malls or Times Square? Um, and I think then that really underscores the choice that we have, which is, number one, we can do what we've been doing, which is become a more closed society, authorize the government to read our emails, listen in our telephone calls, um, put people in prison without charges, um, enact laws that make it easier for the government to do those sorts of things. Um, or we can try and understand why it is that people want to come here and do that. Why are people wanting to attack the United States this way, but not dozens and dozens and dozens of countries around the world? And, and I think we need to get to the bottom of that question in order to figure out how to stop these, these attacks, is to undermine the motive. Last week's bombings at the Boston Marathon were about alienation. The narrative that's taking shape around the Sarnaya brothers is one of a couple of guys who sort of alienated from their local mosque, who more or less self-radicalized and looked stuff up on the Internet. No, that isn't right. The murder of three innocents and the grievous injury to hundreds were an object lesson on immigration. These are individuals that are coming from a part of the world that keeps feeding into this terrorist network. There is no right to come into the United States. It's something we allow people to do. There's no right. No, no, that's wrong too. The latest incident of terrorism on U.S. soil was all about lapses in security. The FBI's handling of Tamerlan Tsarnaev in 2011 and his six-month trip to Russia the following year now face congressional scrutiny. Well, as they say, a hammer thinks everything is a nail. The interpretations of last week's terrifying events, as aired across the media, depended entirely on the agenda of whoever was doing the interpreting. 
In our polarized, polemicized political environment, scarcely an event takes place that isn't claimed by various advocates as the smoking pressure cooker of their various dire fears. But if some reactions to the bombing news were particular, one, in the nerve-wracking hours before the suspects were identified, seemed universal. On everyone's mind was the question, what would be the identity of the culprits? Not the names, the identity. What group would they belong to? Would they be Muslims? Would they be white? Would they be foreigners? Would they be Americans? And sure enough, when Tamerlan and Jakar Tsarnaev were finally named, the answer to those questions in all cases was yes. Peter Beinart wrote about the identity factor in the Daily Beast. Peter, welcome back to OTM. Thanks for having me. Why do you believe that the subtext of race was so prevalent? Well, I think we have this binary kind of division in terms of thinking about these kinds of acts, which in the media is basically Islamist, jihadist terrorists on the one hand, or crazy white Americans on the other. And as I was thinking about that kind of opposition, which kind of played itself out in a lot of different ways in the media, it occurred to me that there has been a way in which Islam has been racialized in the American conversation so that it's the opposite of white. What turned out to be interesting about these guys, the Tsarnaev brothers, who come from the Caucasus, which is the place from which we derive the word Caucasian, is that it just exposes that that makes no sense. How did the word Muslim come to be so uh, all-embracing as a dangerous other? Well, I actually found the historical material really interesting. You know, of course, for most of American history, the government had to figure out what race you were, even though race itself, of course, is a social construct. But the government had to decide what race you were because we were a society segregated along racial lines by law. And often your ability to gain citizenship depended on whether you were classified as being white or not. And so you see these series of cases in the first half of the 20th century where people from the Middle East are trying to prove that they're white. And what you find is that the courts start suggesting that Christians from the Middle East have a better claim than do Muslims from the Middle East, because they start to wrap the idea of Islam in with the idea of not being white in a series of cases starting from 1915 and continuing to 1942. And I think that's the backdrop that was kind of in some ways activated after 9-11, this kind of history in the United States of, of seeing Muslim as something that defined you as not white. It turns out that in answering the question you posed, you found a Rorschach test within a Rorschach test because various parties took a look at the Tsarnaev brothers and said, aha! Well, there was this interesting case study in this because this writer at Salon, David Sirota, wrote a piece before we knew who had committed the attacks saying, I hope these are white Americans. The argument was that there would be less of a crackdown on civil liberties if it was a Timothy McVeigh-style character than if it was a, you know, people like the 9-11 hijackers. And then when it turned out to be the Tsarnaev brothers and we realized they were Muslim and that there might have been some connection to Al-Qaeda-like ideology, some people said, aha, you see, David Sirota was wrong. And that's what I found so fascinating about this, that there was actually this real-life test which exposed the way, perhaps semi-consciously, people see white and Muslim as alternatives. We heard Marco Rubio looking at this as an immigration matter. David Remnick of The New Yorker just kind of assumed that the Tsarnaevs were acting out of reaction to the repression of Chechens. Fox News has made political hay out of the fact that the older brother, Tamerlan Tsarnaev, was on welfare. I think on the right, there is a pre-existing view that we remain in this war on terror with this external foe, and this fits into that. I think progressives are more interested to see this as an immigration story, and that makes it in some ways more of a story about us, about issues that have emerged inside the United States with difficulties of adjusting to being American. You know the story of the three blind men and the elephant? Yes. And they each touch a different part of the elephant and then describe it all differently? Is that what's happening here? Absolutely. There's a recognition that the power to interpret this event in a certain way can be important 
for a whole range of different things, the immigration debate, the gun control debate, American foreign policy. And so people are trying to do that. It's understandable, but it's also sad in many ways because I think that, honestly, an event like this is in many ways also just very sui generis. To try to draw too many conclusions about what's right and wrong in American society or even the nature of the jihadist terrorist threat from this one incident, I think, is dangerous. You need many, 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 many more data points, I think, to really be able to tell that story. Peter, thank you very much. My pleasure. Peter Beinart writes for The Daily Beast. Here in New York City this week, a lot of officials, including the police commissioner, have been saying, praising the surveillance cameras that were so helpful in Boston and saying, we need far more of those and are asking for them. Are we moving into an era when the government is going to know more and more about each and every one of us? What's amazing is is that if you look at the the case in Boston, um, the surveillance state, this massive apparatus of monitoring and storing information about us, that we've constructed over the last decade that's extremely expensive and invasive really didn't do much. It didn't detect the attack before it started. The time attempted Times Square attack in 2010 wasn't stopped because of eavesdropping or, or government surveillance, but because a hot dog vendor noticed something amiss with the bombs that had been left. So again, the surveillance state doesn't really do much in terms of giving us lots of security, but what it does do is it destroys the notion of privacy which is the area in which human creativity and dissent and challenges to orthodoxy all reside. The way things are supposed to work is we're supposed to know everything that the government does, with rare exception. That's why they're called the public sector. And they're supposed to know almost nothing about us, which is why we're private individuals, unless there's evidence that we've committed a crime. This has been completely reversed, so that we know almost nothing about what the government does. It operates behind this impenetrable wall of secrecy, while they know everything about what it is we're doing, with whom we're speaking and communicating, what we're reading. And this imbalance, this reversal of transparency and secrecy and the way things are supposed to work has really altered the relationship between the citizenry and the government in in very profound ways. Is it conceivable to you that that giving up our privacy and even much of our liberty becomes a way of life in exchange, a trade for security. Tom Brokaw suggested as much the other day. Here he is. Everyone has to understand tonight, however, that beginning tomorrow morning early, there are going to be much tougher security considerations all across the country. However exhausted we may be by them, we're going to have to learn to live with them and get along and go forward and not let them bring us to our knees. You'll remember last summer how unhappy we were with all the security at the Democratic and Republican Convention. Now I don't think that we could raise those complaints after what happened today in Boston. I mean, I think that is, first of all, it's extraordinary that journalists lead the way in encouraging people to accept greater government intrusion into their lives. The media, journalists, are supposed to be adversarial to the government, not encouraging people to submit to greater government authority. But I think the broader point um, is that it's that false dichotomy that the more the government learns about us, um, the safer we'll be, Um, in part because... uh, What history shows is that when governments are able to surveil people in the dark, um, generally the greatest outcome is that they abuse that power and it becomes tyrannical. If you talk to anybody who came from Eastern Europe, they'll tell you that the reason we left is because societies become deadened and soulless when citizens have no privacy. And it's, it's a difficult concept to understand why privacy is so crucial, but people understand it instinctively. They put locks on their bedroom doors, not for security, but for privacy. They put passwords on their email accounts because people know that only when you can engage in behavior without being watched 
is that where you can explore, where you can experiment, where you can engage in creative thinking and creative behavior. A society that loses that privacy is a society that becomes truly conformist, and, and I think that's the real danger. That's what happens to people in power, as you know. Henry Kissinger may have been joking back in 1975 when, off the record, although it was later transcribed, he said, the illegal we can do immediately, the unconstitutional takes a little longer. Secrecy is, is the linchpin of abuse of government power. If people are able to operate in the dark, it is not likely or probable, but inevitable that they will abuse their power. It's just human nature, and that's been understood for as long as politics has existed. That transparency is really the only guarantee that we have for checking those who exercise power. Um, and that's the reason why um, the government has progressively destroyed one institution after the next designed to bring transparency, whether it's the media that they've turned into these supine creatures or the Congress that does more to empower government secrecy than any other, or the courts that have been incredibly subservient to assertions of government secrecy. One of the only avenues we have left for learning what people in power do are whistleblowers, people who essentially step out and risk their individual liberty, and that's why there's such a war being waged against them. The, a war being waged against whistleblowers? There have been more prosecutions of whistleblowers under the Espionage Act, which is a 1917 statute under world, enacted in World War I designed to enable Woodrow Wilson to punish people who were opposed to the United States' involvement in that war. More prosecution of whistleblowers under that statute, under the Obama administration, than all previous administrations combined. Um, just in the last four years, double the number, in fact. You've had people who have exposed government deceit and waste and corruption and illegality being systematically prosecuted as criminals um, in very harsh ways, threatened with decades in prison, um, being prosecuted as, as spies, essentially, under espionage statutes, whereas the people on whom they blew the whistles, the actual bad actors in the government, have been shielded and protected. And what this is designed to do is to send a message, as every investigative journalist in the United States will tell you, including ones who work for the most establishment newspapers, to send a message to would-be sources and whistleblowers who want to advise the public about government wrongdoing that they better think twice because they will be severely punished if they do so. One of our best journalists, Jonathan Landay of McClatchy, has turned up evidence from government documents that President Obama and his senior aides have not been telling the truth when they claim to have only deployed drones against known senior leaders of al-Qaeda and their allies. The headline above your column on Jonathan's reporting referred to Obama administration's drone lies. Tough language. The McClatchy article included language um, that the Obama administration at senior levels had misled the country and was deceitful because what these documents showed was that Oftentimes, they were targeting very low-level um, people who, who, whose role in these, these militias were unknown. They had targeted as a favor to the Pakistani government um, various individuals who posed no threat to the United States but who Pakistan thought um, had become extremists. Um, and worst of all, um, the United States government has adopted what are called signature strikes, um, which is where even by their own admission, they don't even know the identity of the people they're targeting, and they simply extinguish their lives um, without knowing who they are, but then justify it to the public by saying we're only targeting senior al-Qaeda leaders, and these leaked documents uh, revealed how false those claims were, and again, it underscores how only leaks and whistleblowing, which the Obama administration is trying to criminalize harshly, um, is the way that we learn about what the government does. You are a lawyer as well as a journalist and an essayist. What's the distinction between death by drones in a tribal area in Afghanistan and Pakistan and what the bombers did in Boston, in your mind? I don't think there is much difference. You could certainly say that one difference, and this is what people would typically say to defend what the United States does and to distinguish it, is that we are not deliberately killing civilians while the people in Boston did. And I'm not sure how true that is. Um, there certainly are cases where the United States has very recklessly killed civilians. Um, but even the drone program itself in its normal operating state consists of a very high level of um, 
possibility that innocent people will be killed in places where there hasn't been a declared war that aren't on a battlefield, in people's homes, in their workplaces, uh, where they congregate in their villages. Um, and so at some point when a government engages in behavior year after year after year after year that continues to kill innocent people in a very foreseeable way and continues to do that, in my mind, um, that reaches a level of recklessness that is very similar in, 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 to intentional killing. You are contrarian on this because there's a, there's a reputable poll which shows that 65% of the American people support Jones. Right. I mean, this is what we were going back to uh, a little bit earlier, which is that people have been inculcated to believe those falsehoods that the Obama administration has been propagating about drones, that they only target high-level terrorists. Um, and when you combine that assumption, that false assumption, with the invisibility of the victims so that Americans never have to think about the human costs, both to the people we're killing and ultimately to themselves from the security threat that it produces, it's very easy to have a warped understanding of the cost and benefits. It's deliberately in inducing people to view these drone attacks in a much more favorable way than reality would, would suggest. So what's playing out here? Is it Human nature, media, politics, propaganda, as you say, fear, all of the above? I, I think it's all, all of the above. I mean, there have been all kinds of political theorists, statesmen, um, leaders, philosophers throughout history who have talked about the dangers that come from allowing a government to ratchet up fear levels by continuously focusing on external threats and enemies, that this is the greatest menace to liberty domestically. Um, and it, I think what ultimately happens, the worst part of it, is that when you continuously induce people to support militarism and aggression and violence by demonizing a foreign other, what you really do is you degrade the population. Um, you transform how it is that they think, the kind of people that they are, the things that they come to expect from life. You really make it a much more savage and bloodthirsty populace um, that will then support things that in the absence of that sustained propaganda, they would find horrific. And I think you see lots of examples of that in, in American discourse. You can't fool all the people all of the time But if you fool the right ones, then the rest will fall behind Tell me who's got control of your mind, your worldview Is it the news or the movie you taking your girl to? Uh. Know what I'm saying, cause Uncle Sam got a plan If you examine what they're telling us, then you will understand What they're planting in the seeds of the next generation Feeding our children miseducation No one knows if there's UFOs or any life on Mars Or what they're doing when they up in the stars Because I don't believe a word of what the president said He's filling our head with lies, gotta hypnotize when he be speaking in cold words about crime and poverty, drugs, welfare, prisons, guns, and robbery. It really means us. There's no excuse for the slander, but what's good for the goose is still good for the gander. Why did they make such a big deal out of John King misreporting that the attacker had brown skin? Why, are they, <clears throat> why did they make such a bill? Well, I don't know. I was watching... Uh, uh, they put this together. Actually, the Rachel Maddow show put this mashup together. And here is how they've been talking about, uh, since we, they found out the bombers were Muslim, here's how they've been talking about it in right-wing media, basically on Fox. This is Bob Beckel, by the way. Star. Bob Beckel is a Democrat, but, uh, yeah, so he's a big Democrat, and he's the he's supposed to be the liberal on the mm -hmm. panel over at the Five. He's the Alan Combs. Except the thing about Alan Combs never let his positions get usurped by the people. He, he, he never became a right-winger. Alan Combs did stay a left-winger. Oh, no, Alan Combs never became a right-winger. He was always a left-winger who lost every argument he had. <laughs> yes. He was just a horrible debater, and that's why yeah. Sean picked him. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, he was a... Anyway, so here is Bob Beckel, and here's how they're talking about this over at Fox. We know there's one bottom line. In the Muslim communities around the world, they do not like us. Okay, which works out fine because we hate their guts too, apparently, right? <laughs> wow. I mean, how much longer are we going to let this peace-loving majority of Muslims in this country hide the bad apples so we can't find them? That's what's happening. Uh, very clever of them. Yes. Uh, okay, also, when are we going to start profiling right-wing extremists? <laughs> huh? We know they hate government. No. All these white people in these militias, mm -hmm. we they do. hate us. These native-born Caucasians. All right, here's this more to it. American Muslims, they largely remain silent. 
This is he just said that the moderate Muslims largely remained silent, even though in Canada it was the Muslim community that just turned in those two guys who were planning to bomb the trains up in Canada. I don't know if you guys heard about that story, mm -hmm. but it was actually sure. the Muslims at the mosque. They, and then, guess what? The Muslims threw the guy who was this bomber. They threw him out of their mosque. They said he was too crazy, and he said, get out. Right. They, they threw him out of their mosque. So let's just he remember was, that. One, the, the one, the guy that was, that, that was killed was too crazy for the mosque. And the guy who's still alive, uh, you know, didn't even participate right. in the churches or anything like that. Yes, this is all correct. I, I, by the way, I can't imagine why moderate Muslims wouldn't want to have a stronger voice in the American public, what with them being shouted down every <laughs> single time by people like this. Right. Remember, they wouldn't even let them open a mosque uh, near the uh, in Manhattan. Okay, so I can't even tell the difference between them and Mexicans. <laughs> Because they're sneaking in, Stephanie. Yes. Uh. So I'm going to play this all the way through. And the first, because when I listened to this, the first time through, it sounded funny. Uh -huh. And then when I was playing it back to, like, edit it and get it ready for the show, Steph said to me, she goes, wow, it sounds horrible the second time. That's my act. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's just, I'm going to let this play, and then we'll go back and take it. This is a situation we all face in America. The jihad is real. Radical Muslims are killing innocent people and threatening the world. You know, we, we bring these people in, even though they're, they're radical Muslims. They, we have to figure they don't much like us. We bring them in. Let me just say this about uh, the access that Muslims have in this country, whether they're American Muslims or whether they're here on a student visa. It, it is enormous, the access that they have, and it is virtually all radical. Senator, uh, very quickly, there are some who are getting very leery of all the, 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 the Muslim students in, in America. What other theology in this world justifies murdering innocent people? The answer is only radical Islam allows terror murder. That's the truth. He's also very dangerous. He's, been, he's kind of been like the Muslim apologist in Congress for a long time. He swore, he raised his right hand uh, and took the oath of office on the Koran, if you remember in 2007, Keith Ellison did. Oh. I think it's time for profiling, though, don't you, Ange? I think it's time for pro profiling because... I do. Okay, so there. So it's kind of funny when you listen to it. But if you listen to it a second time, it just gets really sad. Like, it gets scary, you know? They have, a, they have a lot of access. I mean, one of them became president. There <laughs> <laughs> Can't get more access than that. They're 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 when he up, says they're upset they, that Keith Ellison, who is a Muslim in Congress, right? That he instead of swearing in on the Bible because it's not his religion, he swore it on the Koran, the book from his religion. And so they're they're that's that's a religious litmus test. What they just did is like mm. the worst thing. That's religious bigotry. Mm -hmm. Talk about the yeah. war on religion. What mm -hmm. the hell is that? It's only it's only cool. One religion's only cool in America. You got to be Jewish or Christian because then you can use the Bible to swear in. Any other religion, you're suspect to these guys. C can we just profile the women who marry and go out with these guys? <laughs> yes. The, 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 the dead bomber had a wife and a kid. Way yeah. to go, gals. <laughs> that's good taste there. That's all I'm saying. Okay, I, I, that's my beef. I'm, I'm Jim, just, I'm the, uh, the Chechens are uh, beautiful people. They're very handsome, you know. The women go for the Chechens. All right? I, yeah. You know, I'm just saying, as a Muslim congressman took an oath on the Koran, which is wrong because this is a secular society and you're supposed to take the oath on the Holy Bible. <laughs> so it's just really, as well that he didn't take it. It was take really, a... really sneaky of Keith Ellison to uh, openly tell everyone that he's a Muslim and then <laughs> yes. get sworn in on the Koran <laughs> and then just be openly a Muslim to anyone who wants to know about his religion. Uh, something is afoot here. Well, if he's if he's not trying to hide something, then why doesn't he go by his Muslim name? Why does he go by Keith? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's to lull us into a false state of serenity. You know, this, the, listening to these guys say this stuff, like literally marginalizing a whole section of American populace, and and saying, and you know, uh, pit, getting the pitchforks out. This is what this is, right? You guys have a mm -hmm. different religion than me, so we're coming after you mm -hmm. because yeah. two maniacs uh, who happen to be citizens, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, decided to blow up. A, that has nothing. So uh, let me just say this: it made me think of that that saying that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, and what we need to be vigilant against is these crazy right wingers who couldn't care less about the Constitution. They only care what they really only care about is a, is a couple of lines in the Second Amendment. That's really all they care about, and white privilege. These are the, these are the yeah. same guys who who put Japanese in. Yes, these are the same. These and, are and these bombers, they were from the, the Caucasus region 
of Russia? Right. Yes. Where Caucasians come from? Caucasians, right. yes. Yeah. That's a cr- that's true. Well, you know what, uh, Robert? Will you get? Will you just be quiet about the Japanese internment camp? That's all we ever hear from you. <laughs> Except for never. I'm, I'm really sick and sick and tired of hearing your problems. That's a, the thing that really bothered me was that when he said these these Muslims have so much access, they have the same access that we all do to this country. They are citizens. They have the access of citizenship, and that's what he was objecting to. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So my comments on on this subject are basically, I mean, it's sort of simple. It's, It's that I think the lines have been drawn incorrectly. You know, we divide ourselves based on these arbitrary distinctions like race or religion or nationality, And it's like in the American political system, dividing up between the parties, you know, uh, Democrats and Republicans. I'm certainly not one who thinks that all Democrats and all Republicans are the same or that the two parties are generally the same uh, by a long shot. But I also don't think that the dividing line between those two parties is the most important division there is in American politics. I think that the division between the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless is a lot more important than the division between Republicans and Democrats. And similarly, I don't. I think that the lines have been drawn wrong when we think about terrorism, uh, because frankly, you know, I I think of terrorism as criminal. I, I just do. I don't think of it as an act of war because I don't think that individuals who are basically, you know, a little uh, crazy and usually stupid. I just don't think that they can declare war on the United States and have us take them seriously and say, okay, we'll declare war back on you. It just doesn't work that way. And so I think the dividing line is between criminals and everyone else. And so to divide based on, you know, race, religion, or creed doesn't doesn't make sense when you're trying to root out criminals. You just go after the criminals, whoever they are. So the thing that I think gets lost in this conversation sometimes is, you know, the, the idea that, you know, as if, uh, you know, liberals are saying, no, 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 like, go easy on all the Muslims. It's, it, it's, it's that that's just the wrong label to begin with. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's like a progressive saying, go easy on all the Democrats. No, that's, we're not saying that we're saying some democrats are good some aren't the label that they use is not really the thing that defines them in the way that we really care about it's how they vote and for anyone regardless of their religion it's not about you know what what religion they practice what label they put on themselves it's rather than how they vote it's how they act that's that's how it is with anyone so if you act like a criminal if you're one of the people who goes out and you know commits crimes or acts of terrorism which i think is a crime then those are the people you go after not because of how they've labeled themselves but because of how they've acted and so i think that that's what makes sense morally and ethically but then you know luckily the statistics bear it out as well that muslims do not commit most of the crimes they don't commit most of the acts of terrorism there are plenty of straight white christian males going out and doing that too so there's a lot more similarities between muslim extremist terrorists and white male christian extremist terrorists than there are between a Muslim terrorist and a Muslim person who has a job and a family and a mortgage. That's why it makes so much more sense to focus on extremists of any religion or nationality rather than focusing on 
the nationalities or, you know, as was said in today's show, you know, we were so caught up in what what's going to be the identity of this person. What group are they going to belong to? What what group are they going to, you know, basically cast doubt on in its entirety because of the actions of these two people? The group that they belong to is crazy people. They belong to the group of people who are a little bit unhinged, don't belong in society because they can't play well with others. That's the group they belong to. As is said over and over again, over a billion Muslims in the world, and almost all of them play perfectly well with others, and they're not the ones we need to be worrying about. Secondly, today I just wanted to mention a quick programming note. I'm actually out of town, I'm at a wedding right now, and so I had to, I had to make a decision. Do I keep the show on schedule and post a rerun episode, or do I have the next episode be just one day late and, but have it be a new episode. And so I decided to, you know, let it let it be one day late, but have it be brand new so you wouldn't have to wait uh, as long for a new episode. So uh, although the next episode will be one day late, it will be brand new. It'll be part two, obviously, of the Boston bombing uh, episode. So look forward to that. And don't fret when you see that it hasn't updated in, uh, you know, four days instead of three like is normal. So anyway, I'm sure no one was going to panic, but just want to mention that. So if you have uh, comments, thoughts on, you know, this issue, the bombing in general, you know, were you there? What are your thoughts on uh, the criminals involved? How did you feel when they were caught? How did you spend your time? Did you watch the news? Did you not? Uh, anything like that, I would love to hear uh, any comments along those lines, any thoughts, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to the, especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the show survives. If you are not already subscribed to the show to catch every single episode. There are lots of ways to do it. It's really easy. Uh, you can go and find the show in iTunes and subscribe there. There's the standard RSS feed that you can plug into any RSS feed reader in the world that it will work. And then there are even great uh, apps for smartphones, which a lot of people find to be the easiest way to listen. People of Stitcher as, as their uh, podcatcher of choice, um, but there's even a Best of the Left app made specifically for the show, uh, made for iPhone and Android. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, except for sometimes when I go to weddings, from bestoftheleft.com. Thought black and white. Upon a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out